You're listening to Well Made, a podcast from Lumi about the people and ideas that are shaping our patterns of consumption for the better. I'm your host, Stefan Ango. Jenna Lyons is here. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Hi. So I, I'm sure, well, people listening to this know you from, from J. Crew. And you were there for 26 or 27 years. I'm not sure which one it is because it says both. 27. And somehow everyone keeps trying to take away a year. I don't know why I'm trying to hold on to that last year. It seems silly, but I do. Okay. Well, um, you've been busy with a lot of different creative projects. And actually, I was going to ask you about that because you're working on a TV show, a direct-to-consumer brand of of eyelashes, a hotel in the Bahamas. Is this like for you just really a fun creative time to go and try lots of different things that you haven't had a chance to play with? It is fun. It is it is incredibly exciting to like use my brain in a totally different way. Although it is it draws on a lot of the things that I have grown up and experienced over in my career, but it the muscles feel different and that's been amazing. I think it is also, you know, it also comes with a lot of anxiety and fear because they aren't things that I'm completely like solid in my knowledge. And so that's been a real interesting thing at my age, just to walk into a meeting and really not have a clue what what I'm supposed to be doing. I feel like in my own day job, I found just in the past few years, there's some things we were talking about, the stuff that you learn in school in in design school or, or fashion design school. And some of those things don't, you're working really hard to try and actually accomplish something if you're maybe replicating something that you saw in a drawing or some someone who's a big inspiration. And I think it, it definitely takes decades to, to turn that into something that is so innate that you can then just do it without thinking that it comes naturally. Yeah. Maybe some people are geniuses and can do it <laughs> on day one. But for me, there's some of those things that took a really long time. And I wonder when you're experimenting with these new different mediums and different things like are there things where it's like oh that works just like that other thing and I I know how to do that it's a great question it actually is so funny because I just had an experience this morning where I went to a meeting and was looking at tile for a project and pairing it with wallpaper and I realized how similar it is to really looking at clothing I mean it's exactly the same thing I mean it was literally looking at like a a blue and white de Gournay wallpaper and pairing that with a sort of Merlot like dark sort of glossy tile which is something like it's like a blue and white striped shirt with like, you know, a burgundy tie. It's almost the exact same process and thought process and way those colors work together. And I, it didn't even occur to me until I walked out and I saw a gentleman walking down the street with a blue and white striped shirt <laughs> and a burgundy tie. I was like, I just did that. I, I literally just did that in the store. Like, And it, I think it does. It all comes back around. I think the thing that is different and, and you mentioned, you know, how it took you a while, I think it's not necessarily the process or the work that sometimes doesn't come immediately. Like I think we all are able to do the work or we enjoy the work, but it's the confidence in your decision-making that takes time. Mm. I didn't believe in my decisions for uh, you know quite some time when I was younger. And it took positive reinforcement of whether that was positive sales or people responding positively to the work I'd done to give me the confidence that I can do other things or to do more and to branch out. And I think that that is just something that, you know, yes, some people are born with it and are naturally innate and they trust themselves all the time. And that's great. I, I, I did not come out that way either. <laughs> There's a great, uh, I don't know what it came from. I forget now, but Ira Glass had this uh, whole bit where he was talking about there's this period of time that most creative people have where your taste 
is so much more tuned than your skills are. And so you can critique your own work so harshly. (laughs) And then it takes that period of time to try to kind of get through to the other side where you make something that you actually like. And that maybe is where that confidence kind of unlocks. Oh, absolutely. And being able to, tra- I mean, the number of times I've seen people who could create beautiful mood boards and be and find the most incredible inspiration, but they weren't able to then translate that into an actual thing. And whether that thing was a handbag or a dress or, a, you know, a print or a beaded layout, it's a little bit like hand-eye coordination. You know, it's like you could, someone can really love a beautiful drawing, but that being able to actually create that and, and taking what's inside your brain and make it into something is a is a skill it's a muscle it's not something that everyone has and it also is you can train i mean you can absolutely train yourself to like really apply what you know but it doesn't happen overnight and it's certainly you know i mean some people have a gift and that is like winning the genetic lottery it's like being a supermodel when you have people who are just like you know who can blow your mind and that's great and they're they're all the people we know the tadao andos of the world and you know the people who've really um you know ira glasses of the world that that have really Um, broken out and done something creatively just magical that is just there's some weird touch that yeah I don't think I possessed that I I had to really learn it what feels hard in a good way for you right now what are the things like I've given up so many times trying to learn guitar (laughs) I feel like I need like a running start into that I know I want to do it but it's so frustrating in the time when it's it's hard but then there's other things where you're like I need to get through this friction so that I can get to the other side I think for me, the biggest challenge and the thing that I've really, I'm, I'm very used to having a large team and that is incredible. Um, it has challenges as well. And I'm now in this place in my life where I have a very small team. You don't realize how nimble people need to be and how diverse their talents and skills need to be in order to actually create the number of things that happen within a small company. So it's just, I find myself constantly turning around and being like, all right, I'll do that. Like, maybe can I do that? And I, you know, it's been a struggle in a lot of ways. I'm constantly waking up in the morning and thinking, God, how on earth am I going to get this done? Um, And I find I'm saying myself, saying that to myself more often than not. Whereas before, I think I came from a world where it's like I had a SWAT team that could be put on any project and, and I was really there to kind of guide it through. And it's just, it's a really big shift. How much are you getting back into that? Are you feeling like the goal now is to rebuild a team or what are the things where you're like, I should probably know how to do this? I mean, there's more just bandwidth. And also, I mean, I am really aware of the things that I'm good at and the things that I am not. I, when I know I'm not great at something, I have a tendency to procrastinate and that's not good. So Yeah, I'm the same way. I will jump on something if I'm super excited about it and I will be all over it and I will get done. Um, but it's hard when something is like torturing me. I will literally... I will drag my feet. And so I think having the right crew, I mean, I know how to build a team, but I also need them. You know, we are managing a smaller budget. I don't have endless. I mean, listen, we had the same issues at J. Crew. I mean, we had a massive team, massive budget, but you still everyone always needs more help because the work was incredible. You know, it was just a ton of work. And so um, it's not even that different. You'd be surprised. I, you know, the, the issues are the same. They're just on a much smaller scale. Well, going back to that conversation that you did with Derek Lamb at Parsons, one thing that he mentioned was he found that sometimes people were intimidated by the sewing machine and going back and and actually making something. And it made me wonder, like, this was 10 years ago, or maybe more, I'm not sure. That's what the YouTube video said anyway. It made me wonder, like, when's the last time you or him, like, used a a sewing machine at this point? Or, like, are you doing that? And I don't know, since now your projects are spanning the gamut, like, how much are you getting in front of whatever the, like, creative instrument is? 
Yeah, great question. Definitely not enough. I mean, I think, you know, I took up knitting a couple of years ago, but I had to put it down because it was I was becoming obsessed and like literally spending all of my free time knitting. I was like, this is going the wrong direction in my life. I don't, I'm not ready to sit in a, in a chair and knit re- quite yet. Um, and, you know, I haven't I haven't sat in front of a sewing machine, an actual sewing machine for years. I mean, mine is broken and I never purchased another one because I, I don't make clothes anymore. You know, I do find myself wanting that. And I think one of the amazing parts of being so in something so small is getting to actually go to the photo. I didn't get to go to all the photo shoots at J. Crew. There were just way too many happening. And there was never, you know, in between Madewell and J. Crew and Factory, it was constant. And there was no possible way. Like I didn't, I didn't have that direction, direct connection. I wasn't able to really touch things the way I wanted to. Now I get to do that. And that is, I literally barely had time in my schedule. And I made myself, I got up and went to a tile store this morning because I couldn't wait, <laughs> you know? And so um, that's, exciting to me to be able to touch things and watch them alchemy when things come together. It's the best thing ever. Love Scene is your startup. Uh, you're, well, how, how do you describe it? You, you're, you're making uh, fake eyelashes and um, that it launched in September of last year in the middle of COVID. Um, yeah. There's a lot there to unpack, but I think um, I'm curious you haven't really been in in the startup world before. What it, what is that like, or does it seem very familiar? Because at the end of the day, you know, there were these like smaller groups of people that you were working with at, at J Crew, or how does it feel to be kind of starting th- something from scratch? The only things that are familiar are sort of the the overarching processes in terms of like what you do big picture, meaning how you develop the product and how you actually market the product, what the creative looks like and the process of putting it. Those things have similar arcs, but there is literally not a single similarity in terms of process that I, that is really, that is on the more granular level. I mean, I had smaller teams, but those smaller teams were really individualized. So there were smaller teams of designers, smaller teams of art directors and graphic designers. There were smaller teams that worked on the marketing side, but they all were focused on one thing. Here we have one person who is doing project management. We have one person who is working on creative emails. I mean, it's just, it's so different in that regard. And it's, and I'm working with them very directly. Whereas before there would have been a very senior person who then would have farmed out all of the projects to, you know, an entire team. I mean, our, our catalog team was, you know, 80 plus people. And, you know, I was very close to probably the top three and I knew some of the other people and they would come into my office, but I did not have a direct connection to them. And now it's like, I literally have a direct connection to everything. Now, that being said, I got involved in like, you know, the details of the emails, what what the photograph was at J. Crew and what the copy looked like and what, you know, how did it sound and what was the voice? I was connected to that and I was very much connected to it from, you know, what anything the customer saw. But now it's like, I mean, I'm literally sitting down and sometimes writing the actual copy myself. And the infrastructure, I would guess, it, you probably kind of didn't have to worry about like HR and um, yes. finance and stuff like that. Yeah, there's, there's, we have no infrastructure. I mean, we joke about, I mean, I mean, and not, and not too gassy, but we do joke about like, you know, that the fact that we don't have an HR department to call and like, and I don't mean we joke about it. Like it's, we think it's funny, but it's more just like, God, it is, it's crazy. You know, you forget how it's such a luxury to have someone to turn to, to like, if you're having a bad day or if you have an issue with your health insurance, or if you, you know, need to find out about, you know, how, where you go get your ID or how to, it's like all of these things. And we just don't really, we don't really have that. And it's been, yeah, it's been really humbling. I, I actually have to say, I really do. I do like it. I like the process of feeling, I don't know, really intimate in, in creating something. It's really nice. 
it seems like you're really involved. Um, I, I feel like a lot of people of your stature, they get to become a public figure and then it's like sort of like very white labeled version of that where you're sort of just putting your name on something and then it's someone else's problem to like build the whole <laughs> company and infrastructure behind it. Well, first of all, I wouldn't be comfortable with letting anyone take any kind of um, reins around my name in, in any way. I think that is such an important part of, you know, the integrity of, of the quality of the product is so important to me. It's one of the things that I really do enjoy. But I also like, I wanted to go back to the beginning because I wanted to do something where I could touch things. I felt really disconnected by the time I, you know, was leaving J. Crew. I was, I was just a manager. I didn't feel connected to the the creative process the way I had had been coming up in that world. And so I wanted it. It's funny because I think that, you know, title and, you know, oversight of a company give you so much. It predetermines what people think you are and who they think you are and how they think you operate. And the fact matter is like, you know, I'm still the person that like just wanted to make beautiful things. And that hasn't changed. So what was the idea and inspiration behind Love Scene? Um, well, I, I don't have any eyelashes, so I've become massively <laughs> obsessed with them always. I think it's, you know, you notice the things in others that you don't have. And so um, I noticed all the women in my office at J. Crew when I was there coming in with eyelash extensions. And um, and on the flip side, I was obsessively watching YouTube videos of like James Charles and the Huda Beauties of the world and like putting on eight layers of contour and 15 highlighters and 12 shades of eyeshadow and then the eyelashes at the end. And I thought it was really interesting that you had these two polar opposite types of people who were looking, you know, the J. Crew girls who were wearing basically no makeup um, other than eye, eye, you know, eyelash extensions and maybe some gloss or red lip every once in a while. And then the flip side of these people who were doing a ton of like really over the top makeup looks, but they both were focusing on eyelashes at the end. And I thought that was kind of interesting. And I realized that there just wasn't a lot in between. And in my experiences over over the years of red carpet or doing TV stuff, I had, you know, worked with Troy Olivier, who's my co-creator, and we were cutting them apart because there was just nothing. They were all so over the top that it was hard. I couldn't wear them. And so, you know, it was just really a little idea that's turned into this thing that's been really fun. Well, scratching your own itch like is always the best way to start something. So good. Yes, it is. And what's also it, the, the attention to detail is already there because you're so attuned. Um, I was already, you know, just so attuned to everything around that process because I'd been really connected to it visually for a while. Yeah, I still can't believe it. I still can't believe it's happening. <laughs> Every once in a while, I'm like... I look at an article, I'm like, oh, wow, that's us. You know, it feels it feels somehow removed that it's actually like not my company, but it's, it's so fun. I was trying to figure out the history of fake eyelashes, which apparently is a lot more controversial than I expected. Oh, my God. Um, and just in terms of who takes credit for it and all of this, do you uh, tell us the story from your perspective, if you know it? Well, I know I know some parts of the history, but I mean, eyelashes have been a focal point for years. I mean, even back down to back, you know, to the days of Nefertiti and like really doing dramatic eyes. They there used mm. to, there was a time when eyelashes were literally sewn on to people's eyes. They would they would sew on like with a needle and thread onto their eyes, which I think is just the most insane thing I've ever heard. Um, but it was pretty intense. But there's there's been an obsession with with drama and eyes and creating more magnification around the eyes since you know as I said. Since Nefertiti's days, but in terms of like who actually 
decided that they invented eyelashes? I don't know if I actually know the answer to that question. I'm curious. No, I well, they, this is a, this is a hot point. If you look this up on the internet, people are are. Uh, I guess it's been figured out that it, the the original patent, I guess, is what you can go back to, was from 1911, and somehow I didn't read the full story, but it had to do. Uh, there's a connection between Hollywood and and eyelashes, and, and it became a really important part of kind of the, the fashion at that time. And just, I mean, I guess throughout the whole 20th century. Yes. Um, I think, you know, it's interesting because Erin Parsons is a makeup artist who I did like a, a, a collaboration with, and she's she's incredible. And she uh, buys up old fake eyelashes and Marilyn Monroe's eyelashes, and they were made literally specifically for Marilyn Monroe. She had her own completely bespoke eyelashes but all of the literally all of the starlets did that was actually very common that they would have specifically you know bespoke eyelashes made for them that were you know the jean harlow etc and i thought that was pretty interesting that that was it was just sort of par for the course everyone wore them i mean i think today they're still pretty prevalent particularly in, in television um less so in in movies and and you know that's a different vibe but um yeah they've been around for you know quite some time but i think that's just when the initial patent was made but they were Literally, there were all kinds of ways that women were making them, gluing them on, gluing on, you know, hair, sewing on hair. It's been going on for, you know, quite some time. Also, in my deep dive on the history, there was a time in the like Middle Ages where people were plucking all of their <laughs> eyelashes and trying to remove them. <laughs> and eyebrows. Yes, that was a form. Oh. I mean, totally. That was a, yeah. a form of regalness and also pulling them back their hairline as well. So there was a time that in fashion and in history where beauty was about, about you know, like completely mitigating any sort of visual um, lines on your face and, and pulling your hairline way back, which I think is just, I, thank God I was, I mean, I would not fare well in that situation. Well, you would have uh, fit right in with your no eyelashes. With no eyelashes and I don't have any eyebrows <laughs> either, really. I have mine tattooed on, but I think the high hairline, I would have been an absolute disaster. So what, how did the the pandemic and everything throw, throw off your plan? Because you launched in September and I can imagine that that was, I guess... Things must have shifted around in terms of how you how you do this. Yeah, I mean, I think I mean the impact was I mean pretty pervasive. Um, everything from just literally losing a good almost five months where we were burning cash that because we couldn't launch because we couldn't take any imagery. So we had a team in place, we had product on order, but we could not we could not populate the website with imagery because we could not have a photo shoot, and that was really a very hard time. Um, you know, it's hard to really just, you know, you've got all these people sitting there waiting and you're just sort of burning through the cash. And I think that was really um, a very hard moment. On top of that, you know, we were building a team and we weren't together. And, you know, it's one thing if you're putting together something, where, you know, an app where, you know, you can do things by, via email or you're, I don't know, but when you're trying to build a creative organization, you want to put things on a table and look at them together. You want to see how this responds to this. You want to look... It's very hard to do that in Zoom. I mean, I'm used to like laying images out on a table and then you cut them and paste them and say, well, oh, this looks nice. And then the team goes back and rebuilds it so that you're not having to completely just redo everything on the computer 50 times because that's not easy. And you can't actually map out something in a large scale because you can only see what's on your screen. And it was just, I mean, the most painful process, particularly for me, because I'm so used to that old school way of looking at things, like looking on a board and saying like, okay, what is the overall look and feel going to be? And then how is the customer going to experience that like on their phone or on a desktop? So never having that opportunity to really look at it was, for me, it was a little, it was <laughs> really crippling. Um, you know, I mean, there's a million other ways that I can talk about how challenging it, ha- it was and still is, you know, I mean, we normally, you know, our whole marketing plan was 
you know, really, we wanted to go to, you know, a couple of like key cities and announce that we're coming. And we had projects that we were going to do with different, you know, different people to, you know, sort of host us and, and put eyelashes on people. That was the idea. And, you know, <laughs> we're not doing that. Uh, you know, and who knows when, you know, that will even be in the future if we can do it. And it's just been not fun. I'm, I'm, listen, I'm grateful to have a project that I was able to launch and a job. So I'm not, I don't mean to seem, I know a lot of people have had a very rough situation. I, I feel grateful for that. It's just been um, not exactly how we'd hoped. I saw that you, you figured out there's some way that uh, people can try them on digitally. How does that work? Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's literally just, a, you know, like a really classic AR. It's, um, you know, I remember when uh, you can do this on the website or where do you, how do you, act, where do you do it? You can do it on the website, but I think it, it makes more sense to do it on your phone. You can do it as an Instagram filter and you can just type in love scene and go and try them on. I, I remember really distinctly when we were starting this whole thing, one of my partners, Jeff, sent me a, a picture of himself sitting in a Nike store and he was like trying on a sneaker in the store. And I was like, mm. what the fuck is that? <laughs> like, that is amazing. And, um, you know, so one of the team members, Rory, was, I thought, we, well, maybe we could do that for the eyelashes. And we're like, amazing. amazing. So we worked with this company who has been, you know, they basically literally took the eyelashes and built them on eyes. And now, yeah, it's, it's weird, right? Like, who the hell ever thought you'd be able to do that? Well, now it's, it's in, you know, it's in Snapchat, it's in Instagram. I think even Zoom has its own filters on faces. Like, so it just, just beyond, you know, trying them out. I think people are more and more like leaning into this like digital kind of cosmetics, virtual cosmetics concept. And I'm curious how you feel like, I mean, especially in an era where all (laughs) tuning in from Zoom, it seems more relevant. Oh, completely. I mean, I, I, listen, I am absolutely fully guilty of turning on the touch up my appearance button on the on my Zoom, <laughs> especially um, you know, especially towards the later part of the week where I'm like dragging a little. Uh, uh-huh. you know, I think it's some. I, I think it's. I like process and technology and progress. I think it's really incredible. You know, obviously, any form of progress comes with challenges, as we all know, and the world of Instagram and the level of perfection that people aspire to or present is not always in, you know, deep connection with the reality of their lives. And I think that we all are aware of that. And I think that, you know, but before Instagram, it was magazines that, you know, retouched everything and, you know, the girls were perfect. And now we're just shifting over to a new medium. I think that there is a lot of interesting things happening in technology. And I think it's pretty exciting. I've wondered um, whether you would even consider selling like digital eyelashes <laughs> because I think that's actually starting to become a thing. There's a company that I saw called Tribute Brand. I don't know if you've come across it there. They call it contactless fashion. It's all these like, I guess basically what it's what they're doing is just retouching images. So you send them a photo and then they've like designed these three-dimensional fashion pieces and they're selling them in limited quantities and they'll do the work of like editing your your photo. But now you're seeing so much more progress going on with um, technology that it seems reasonable that in a few years it'll be easy to like map anything you want, whether it's like clothing or makeup onto someone digitally. And so then it, it's like, can you sell that thing as a virtual asset as opposed to a physical one? I mean, why the hell not? I mean, I'm going to get off this call and see if we can do. I mean, yeah, great. <laughs> you should. Because well, I guess, 
Yeah, and I'm trying to think of the best the best context. I mean, I think it would be great for them to be available in the Zoom app because that is when you really do see the difference. I mean, I've been wearing them more frequently on Zoom calls. It's amazing the difference it makes. Um, I've actually been wearing this the real thing because I happen to know somebody at the company. But um, mm-hmm. so you know, that's a great idea. I have an insider question for you, which is okay. which is which is fancier, Zoom with back background blur turned on or Zoom with background blur turned off? <laughs> I think turned off because it's more it's projecting your your confidence. Yeah, well, and also I mean that also is, I mean you know depends on your background, so that's where you can really see what's fancy. Okay, well, w- which is fancier, having uh, the the sharp background or the <laughs> I, I, the way I'm going to describe this already makes it sound fancier, but having an out of focus you know uh, background because the lens is out of focus. Um, you know, low depth of field. Oh, I love shallow depth of field. Yeah. They, a lot of people are upgrading their cameras and they've got the DSLR set up with their computer. I have not been on a Zoom call with anyone who is that sophisticated from that, but God knows I'm going to find out. Oh, that sounds amazing. I didn't know you could get a shallow depth of field in a Zoom call. That is definitely fancier. Um, this was this was provided by Laurel uh, <laughs> on your team. <laughs> Apparently, which is fancier is a, is a popular game at Love Scene. Yes, it is. <laughs> we, uh, we we usually take things like salt or pepper. Which what do you think is fancier, salt or pepper? I'm going to say pepper. Pe- pepper was my first instinct, uh, but I also have a lot of fancy black pepper in my cabinet. <laughs> I like to cook with like fancy black pepper. So yeah, I see. Everyone has their thought. What, what's fancier? Uh, body oil or body lotion? I don't know. I guess I use neither, but I would say oil sounds fancier, but I, I really can't say. No, it's up to you. It's pretty fun. We play it like on the Friday nights or sometimes when we like when everyone's had a long week or when we've had something, we, uh, we'll go around and decide what's fancier. Kyle DeFord is the one who started that. It's pretty funny. All of the ones I could come up with for you were, were pandemic uh, edition. Like what's fancier? A, a hoodie, like a, a sweat hoodie or a wearable blanket. <laughs> oh, hoodie. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I think so. There's a, there, someone's got to invent the like a classy wearable blanket that you can wear on a Zoom call. I mean, I think we're right. That would not be the Snuggie. I don't think that um, the Snuggie would fall under the, the, the particularly classy section of things. So, yeah, I'll get on that. Going back to um, <laughs> the virtual kind of world of of uh, eyelashes and fashion, do you know what cyberpunk is? Have you ever come across that term from science fiction, like Blade Runner and The Matrix or Ghost in the Shell? These are all these kind of like movies and science fiction that's set in this kind of world where body modification is like a big part of it, whether it's like for fashion reasons or for functional reasons i guess and it feels like more and more we're like entering that universe with what's go- what's been going on with you know us all being on zoom and things going on with you know a lot of people are wearing airpods nowadays and airpods are kind of this kind of place somewhere between a functional benefit and a fashion accessory where does that like idea take you in terms of like where all those worlds are crossing over the part of me that I think is um, interested in it is it the is the same part of me that also wants to like to not have as much connected to it. It's like I, I you know when you look at earpods particularly and like for instance an Apple Watch, the thing that I where I get stuck and that I'm not as a fan of is 
you know, I don't like it when people have Android phones because then if I try to do an iMessage group chat, I can't like make mm-hmm. it happen. Like it drives me absolutely nuts. But like, I don't love the fact that every single person I see on the street is wearing the same ear pods. Like it kind of makes me crazy. I can't wear them at all because my I, ears are absolutely tiny and they just will not stay in my ears. But so I'm, I'm like, I feel a little bit immune to it. But I, it is a, it's a strange phenomenon to feel like drones coming at you, like looking at their phones and wearing those ear pods. Like, and that part, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of. And like the Apple Watches, all, every, every, they all look the same. You know, there's really no variation within them. They're a little black screen. I think they're not the best accoutrement for style. I would say that it's like I'm, I'm not part of that to go away. I think. I know it won't. Well, yeah, it, it, it gets it gets a little awkward if you can't if if all our clothing becomes uh, somehow technological in nature if you can't communicate with somebody else because your clothing is not compatible. That seems right? like a problem. <laughs> it's funny. I was talking to someone this morning. She's like, "Well, my uncle only ever turns on his phone if he needs to make a phone call. So he turns on the phone, makes the phone call, and then turns off the phone." <laughs> It's like a little bit like he's like, well, I'm hanging it up. <laughs> I was like, God, that seems like bliss <laughs> to be that unavailable. My phone is literally currently at the Apple store right now because it was went on the fritz and I've been with it out it for the entire morning. And it's amazing. When you are thinking about, okay, so let's let's talk a little bit about Stylish, your show um, that's on HBO that that started airing in December, right, of last year? Yes. Also, very shifted by COVID. It was originally supposed to air in May. Explain the concept of it. The show, just for clarity, it's on HBO Max. I just feel like I should say that. Um, it was really about wanting to create a show that ha- sort of that had the intersection of fashion, home, and beauty in a way that felt really honest. And so I think you know this idea of how do we put people or you know sort of associates as we called them because that's what we would call somebody who was working with us, put them through tasks that are real and honest. That would give us a sense of who they were as people, what their talents were. And at the end of the show, we would, you know, hire one of them, which we in fact did. The idea was to, to create takeaways, to create tools that people could use in their own lives that gave them advice and how to think about things, how to see things. And a lot of these shows, whether they're makeover shows, which are sort of felt like a makeover show, they they don't really tell you how to do it. They just show you what they're doing. And you never really see any you don't get any tips out of it. You don't really get any sort of advice. And I think that was the thing that was really important to us was to be able to like impart advice and information to people. And it seems to have worked. People are so like excited and supportive. And all of the messages that I get are always like, I didn't know about a sight line. I didn't know how to buy a rug. And I'm like, awesome. Great. I'm so happy. Help someone today. Awesome. What are you learning from the show? Oh, God. I mean, I think... It is the most humbling experience to be in the front of cameras and to really to really think about how you communicate. It's it is an um, like mental gymnastics sometimes to to really clock your communication. What are you saying? How are you communicating? Are you being clear? Are you being thoughtful? Are you being nurturing? Are you being harsh? It's good for me because uh, you really when you know you're being listened to, you you are different. You know, you really I don't know if different is the right word, but you're really, you're very calculated and thoughtful about it. And I know there's that. I think also, you know, you can't imagine what it's like to be like coming from where I came from and my experience and my tenure and to be in a place where I don't know how to manipulate the system. You know, I don't know how to shift the process. At J.Crew or in my previous job, I knew exactly who to call if something wasn't working out or if I was having, if something was blocked, I could pick up the phone 
I didn't have any any places where I didn't know how to move forward. Whereas in this world, I I had no idea what the process was supposed to be like. I had no idea how to manipulate the process to to get the outcome that I was hoping for because I just didn't I didn't have any experience. And I mean, my God, like talk about humbling. <laughs> it's um yeah, it was yeah, that was special. With some of the I don't know what you call them, like candidates uh, that are on the show. What, is there anything that you're discovering from how, whether, I don't know if they're like younger millennials or, or Gen Z, like, are there any things that are kind of coming to your attention through that process about how the next generation is thinking about this world? For sure. I mean, we so we, we called them associates. And the reason we did is because if we were going to hire one of them, that's what I would call someone who worked for me as an associate. Like, so that was important to us to not call them like contestants or, you know, it wasn't a contest. It was an, it was an interview process and that was very real. And um, and I think we wanted it to not feel like it was a competition, but really just be like, okay, who are you and what are you about? The thing I noticed and the thing that's really so interesting to me, and I get this question quite a bit from younger people, and I'm always like, I don't even know how to answer it, is like, what were you thinking about how to build your brand? Or what was the thing that helped you figure out how to build your brand? I'm like, it never even occurred to me. <laughs> you know, when I was coming up in the world, people weren't brands and brand was a brand. It was a it was a company. It was something with a, a label and a door and a logo. And, and you know, now people are brands. And I think that's really interesting. But at very young age, they're all very concerned with it. Every single one of them that were the youngest ones particular really were thinking about how do I communicate who I am at every turn. And it was fascinating for me to to see that. I mean, it was just it just didn't exist when I was growing up in, in the in the industry. And so I feel really I honestly feel lucky that I, you know, am coming out into the world at a time where I was a little bit more established and I didn't have to think about it. I mean it's hard to feel like pressure when you're 22 of like I have to build my brand. I'm like, God, dear Lord, no, you have to go on a date. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, the the concept of brand in general, I think is, yeah, it seems like everyone is a brand now, even just, you know, just your friends and how they portray themselves on social media is a form of a brand. And when it actually becomes a brand is if you can convince other people to kind of adopt it too, in, in some way. And it, so it, it's, I guess it's more democratic who can be a brand. Yes, for sure. But I also think the more people that are able to play in the field. And again, I'm like so happy that anyone can and anyone who really makes a mark can be can really cut through. And I think that's incredible. But the fact of the matter is the more people, the more people. So you're more splintered, you are in there's more competition. And so, you know, it's a it's I think people then get really disappointed if they don't cut through and like people feeling like, oh I didn't get enough likes and I didn't get enough followers. And it's like, oh God, that is like harkens back to my days of not being popular in high school and it sucks. Mm -hmm. You know, I think there's um there's a lot to be said for, you know, a, a sort of more disconnected process. But at the same time, I like, I love it. I just am like, oh, I, I see the the toll it can really take on on young people. For most of your career at J. Crew, you were involved in creating like a very democratic version of fashion that, you know, was intended to appeal to like a very wide audience. Is that something that ever was a constraint for you? Or do you find yourself now having more freedom with the projects that you're doing, kind of trying things that are maybe more on the edges? I think it was a constraint, but it was one that I, I embraced and, and believed in because the, the brand had heritage and I, you know, it had a it had a, a sort of language to it that I wanted to preserve that and wanted to maintain that as best I could. It doesn't mean that I didn't push it. And sometimes I think we probably pushed too far. 
Um, and we did try to find some of the edges at some times and, and we pulled back. And I think, um, you know, and I have to say, like, I feel deeply appreciative even for the fact that we were able to do that. I think Mickey was very supportive in us trying things and to, and to sort of test the edges. You know, now in my current role, the thing that I do really love is that I don't have to really, I'm not, I'm not, there is no legacy to the brand. So we are establishing our voice as we go along. And so I don't have to worry about someone feeling like, oh, and now I'm left out or, oh, I don't like your brand because you voted for so-and-so or, you you know, you can be, I can be as political as I want. I can be as, you know, sort of irreverent as I want. I can curse if I want. I don't have to, and there's those things that I think feel a little bit more um, freeing in the sense that I'm not constantly looking through the lens of this brand that has a, a really big legacy and a very, very large customer base that, you know, is is easier to to upset in some way. In In my own design work, I tend to focused on like very democratic, more minimalistic designs that are like intended to be used all the time every day. But I I remember one of my favorite projects I ever did was actually in school. I redid the branding for a hotel here in Los Angeles. And a hotel is like the place where you can be the most extreme because anyone who comes there is probably only coming there for a few days. So you can, Uh I feel like experiment with things that are more wild because it's it's a moment in time for for everyone who's part of that experience, and so and you're you've been working on a hotel, and I was yes. curious if that was an area where you were kind of flexing uh, that more creative, like extreme area of your your creativity. Yeah, I mean, such good questions. I mean, yes, completely. I think I think you're right. I mean, first of all, you want the person's experience to feel like I just got off a plane, I traveled here. This feels like transportive. I feel like I'm seeing something I haven't seen before, or at least not experienced in person. And I think that's that's a really incredible opportunity. And and because it is a hotel in the Bahamas, we should mention, right? Yes, it's in Elbow Key in the Bahamas. And it's, you know, I think that is pretty amazing to have the opportunity to do something like that. And I think it's, you know, you're right. It's like there's so much more there's so much freedom in a hotel in that nature. It's a boutique hotel. We have so like all of the rooms are gonna have slightly different vibes and we have different color stories and I mean, it's literally like the most fun I have had in a while, just because I think there is, as you said, there's just so much opportunity to kind of experiment and go crazy. And I don't want to say go crazy, but we are doing some pretty um, unique things for particularly, you know, I'm obsessed with bathrooms. So making some really interesting moves in some of the bathrooms and having, you know, giving people a moment of like magic that they wouldn't necessarily create in their home. Because it probably wouldn't, they would go crazy after a while. <laughs> you know, but you can really do right. it in a hotel because, as you said, people are only there for a period, a short period of time. Um, and that's just, yeah, it's been incredibly fun. Was well, there like a, a theme or a concept or an emotion that you're trying to convey? Or is it, how do you think about that? Uh, I mean, there's a, a huge deck of like imagery that I put together of sort of like what I wanted the, the hotel to feel like. Um, you know, it is a colonial town. And so, but the fact of the matter is, you know, it suffered a massive hurricane. And so, you know, the effort was really to create a space that felt like it really honored the history of the town and and the location itself, but also really spoke to like, uh, you know, the easiness and the softness of the island. Um, we really did, you know, we originally started off with wood timber structures and that was pre-hurricane and literally post-hurricane, we had to completely rethink that because we needed to have like real solid structures because to ensure Timber structures in the Bahamas is now three times the price <laughs> as, as doing wow. a concrete structure. So we had to, there's been a lot of like real sort of tactical things that have come into play, but I actually think they provide really valuable 
constraints because constraints, as you know, from working in the design field can actually be a source of creativity, uh, which so I'm actually really enjoying that and we're doing like, um, but I, I don't know if I could give you a, uh, I, we wanted it to be transportive. It is definitely whimsical. It is absolutely, it is sort of what we call barefoot luxury, meaning like it's not fancy, but it is very well thought through. Um, very like the detailing is is not fancy, but it is it is thoughtful. And it's, you know, I think it has like a sort of a visual romance to it. I mean, of course, we are literally just in the beginning of like, ar- we're at architecture and, and landscaping stage. So we haven't even... We haven't even broken ground, so it is a ground-up build. A few years away, probably, then? Yeah, probably two years, yeah. I, I mean, uh, you know, God willing, it'll be two years, yeah. And we've already been, it's been a year and a half or almost two years already, just because we were slowed down by the hurricane, which ironically has given us the opportunity to completely redo all of the electrical, all the HVC, kind of thinking about how we can get water to the, the island properly in a, in a much more you know, healthy way for the environment. So there's actually been a lot of great things to come out of it, but it's definitely slowed down the process. You have a, a son who seems also very creative. I saw this thing where you're talking about a little piece of art he made, which was a 3D printed <laughs> 3D printer. So it was like a 3D print of the 3D printer, which was very meta and and very... Like, I'm wondering what, what you're learning from him creatively. You really found everything didn't you so much research um i um yeah i mean he does not take things at face value which is so incredible and so i mean i just i when i was growing up like if someone told me something was the way it was i didn't question things you know i was curious and i wanted to do my own thing and touch things but i didn't have the same level of like questioning and exploration that he does it's pretty incredible and he he's got an irreverence for you know he wants to see how something is made and he wants to take it apart and he wants to understand it. You know, I mean, literally like, I mean, that goes for everything. I mean, we were talking about therapy at one point and, and he was like, well, you have to know about the brain before you can do therapy. And I'm like, that's really interesting that you, you would want to understand how it works. How does it work? And that's just a fascinating. Just for context, he's, what, he's 13 or 14, something like that. 14. Yeah. <laughs> this is a very deep question. Yeah, I know. I mean, and even just the fact that he made that digital printer, I mean, he made that when he was 10. So he literally was, you know, he wanted the digital printer to t- turn in on itself. He specifically said that. He said he wanted the digital printer to have to look at itself. And I thought, you're 10. Like, I didn't want to look at myself. I still don't really want to look. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that's incredible. Yeah, no, he's... um. I enjoy talking, you know, he's, he will literally walk into a restaurant and be like, wow, this is beautifully done. I love the way that they mix the tile or I love, and I'm like, oh God, mm. what have I done? Like, <laughs> you know, but I love his attention to detail. And I think having had a parent or parents who are very detail oriented, um, I think it's interesting to watch. He also though has my complete lack of organizational skills, which I'm sorry, Beckett, I apologize. has he challenged your way of thinking on anything has he changed your way of thinking about even like specific projects or inspiration that you drew from his kind of irreverence there is uh, magic in in the way that he experiences things and the way that he you know he's definitely you know like little things like i know this sounds silly but like I was I've been working on um, just some ideas for this the shell. There, there's a room like I don't know if you've seen the ossuary in Prague. Have you ever seen that? No. Do you know about that? I, maybe I don't think so. No. It's um. It was literally during after the plague, um, a priest uh, went to this man who was an incredible woodworker and said, "Will you help honor the dead?" And he took all of the bones from all the people who had died in the oh, Black wow. plague and created this incredible ossuary. And I'm not sure if I'm saying it right, ossuary. 
And um, it's really incredibly beautiful. Anyway, it sort of led me down this path of there's these things called sailors' valentines, which are basically what sailors' wives would give their husbands to take out to sea. And it was like, be mine, come back to me. And there were these beautiful inlaid patterns of shells. And so Mm. in thinking about those two things, I was sort of, I got obsessed with making like a a sort of grotto shell area in in the property. And, um, And I remember talking about it with Beckett. And so you know, he was like, well, let's just start experimenting. And he was, I was like, well, okay. And so I started gluing shells all over the wall in my bathroom at the beach. And he will come in and he'll be like, well, I don't know if, I think that this shouldn't go this direction. I don't think this should all be white. I don't think, I think this is boring, mom. I'm like, oh God, you're, you're right. (laughs) I want to flash forward (laughs) 10 years and have Beckett on the podcast and talk. I'm very curious where he goes with this. He's very articulate. He would, you could have him now and you would be amazing. Oh yeah, no, (laughs) sure. We could have him now. Let's do it. One last topic I was just very randomly curious about, but what's your responsibility on the Shake Shack board? What What do they call on you for in the boardroom? I mean, all of the board members have the same responsibility. We're all coming, to, you know, for anyone who has not served in the board or isn't as familiar with what the board does. I mean, what you're looking for is someone who can give you balanced feedback or balanced calibration on what you're doing and where you're going and having some experience of what you've been through in the past. So, you know, ironically, and one might not think that my background lends itself to, you know, uh, and a high-end hamburger joint, but no, on the contrary. Um, but in, in the fact of the matter is, we ha- we share a lot of the similar experiences. Uh, you know, lots of employees who are not part of the home office. So you have a huge staff that sits outside of the home office. Then you have a home office who is deeply connected to those restaurants. And but again, we, same thing with our stores. How you communicate your product, how you market your brand, how you continue to innovate, how you how, like those kinds of things are all very similar. The most important role for any board member is to is to represent the shareholders and make sure that the team that is in place and currently inside the business is actually running the business with the business's health in mind, running the business with a level of integrity, doing everything there, you know, following all the Sarbanes-Oxley laws. Like there's 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 sort of very just sort of straightforward things. And so our responsibility is, as a board member is to is to protect the interests of the shareholder. Has it been has it been fun for you? Have you like learned anything through that experience? I love it. I mean, that the team, like, first of all, Randy, you know, Randy Grudy, who is the CEO, is he is a star. He is an incredible leader. He is incredibly energetic and fun and so engaging and so on top of it. And then on top of that, I get to sit on a board with Danny Meyer, who also has just the most, you know, he's got such an incredible ethos. He's very warm. He's it is truly a joy to sit on a board where the leaders of the company are so incredibly human. They're very warm. They are not disconnected. They have deep care and you know and love and for the team and and it's really spectacular. And I've learned so much. The world has changed and the world is changing. And you know to see you know there's their their issues are similar to some of the issues we face, but then there are also some of them are completely different. You know, it's been an incredible um, experience for me. And yeah, I feel super grateful to be on that board. Well, there's this idea that I love that everyone should have a board, just your personal board of like the people who are your advisors in life. If you are <laughs> going to make a big decision, right. who do you go to to be that sounding board? Um, who's who's on your personal board? Oh, gosh. I mean, it depends on what it is. I mean, I think I've really gotten to the point in, in my life where, um, you know, I have really close friends and partners. Um, you know, I think Brett Boutier, who is, is my partner and, and 
is probably one of my most closest confidants and I feel really lucky to have him. I mean, obviously Mickey still is in my life and, and um, has been incredibly helpful to me in moments where I was a little bit like, I'm not sure. Uh, and I still have a lot of connections to quite a few of the people that I've worked with over the years. And so, you know, I think it really depends on what it is. If, if, uh, you know, I think if it's something that's more financial based, um, there are, is a little core group of people that I'll talk to. It's more creative. There's another core group of people I'll talk to. And I do think I've learned to ask questions and to not be shy. I think I was afraid before to really ask, well, what do you think? And again, this was earlier on in my career, but I've really got a healthy dose of that. I watched Mickey Drexler literally get everyone's opinion about anything big or small. And there's real power in that. It's it's not just about getting information yourself, but also showing anyone that it's okay to ask questions. It's it's actually okay to get advice and it doesn't matter at what stage you are in your career. And that was really powerful, I think. Lovescene.com is uh, where people can get eyelashes and also explore uh, the Instagram if you want to try them on uh, virtually. Thank you. Um, stylish on HBO Max if you want to catch up. Are you doing a season two? Oh no! Oh, okay. We're we're on the edge of our seat. We'll we'll <laughs> figure that out, and then in two or three years, uh, go to the Bahamas. We'll be everyone. This will be the the roaring twenty twenties, and you'll be able to have fun at Jenna's hotel. Thank God. I mean, thank. We'll actually be able to. We're going to be able to go to a hotel in two years, right? That's going to happen. <laughs> my my personal philosophy, and this started almost a year ago. At this point, I think like in May was just. I decided, as far as I'm concerned, this is going on for the rest of time, and I'm just going to live my life that way, and then we'll... <laughs> when everyone's able to get vaccinated and things like we can go outside again, let me know. Uh, I, I'm perfectly happy, like, stay. I'm, I'm a bit of an introvert. That's why I, I do a, a podcast. This has been a, a boom time for introverts, but I think we'll be back to uh, to normal by the time the hotel opens. Did it change? Has it changed a lot for you? We, my company has gone completely remote. And in fact, we've like uh, let go of our office. We have, you know, 45 person team. And, uh, and, and that has been really, really fun for me. I just really enjoy, I find myself uh, much more productive, much more creative. I like to go for a jog at 2.30 PM, you know, <laughs> around that time. And so when we were in the office, it was just like not really possible. And so I, I, I find that as far as the structure of my day and like the productivity of our team, it's been, it's been great. That's amazing. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. It's, I think when you're established, that works a little bit better. I think it's, yeah, it's definitely harder when you're starting out, but that's great. Do you find that you need to see your team at all? We have done that. Yeah. I do think it's, I mean, there's certain things that you can't do as much with, you know, whiteboarding and kind of brainstorming. And it can be difficult, especially in like bigger groups. There's always, you know, one or two people who are going to be quieter and not going to, I mean, that happens in real life too, but yeah. I think it's easier to call on people um, and get their opinion in person. Um, and, and there's more things that happen that are spontaneous. I think we'll, we'll be able to recreate those things, even in a world where we're remote first and have like, hopefully when people can travel again, we, we can have those times, you know, once a quarter or every 
few like every month or something. It depends on the cadence of a team, but I think I'm okay with with that cadence as opposed to having to do it, let's say, every day or every week. Is your team all in Los Angeles? Or are they spread out now? No, everyone's. Well, what happened was everyone <laughs> moved, and then we started hiring people from other places, and then we were like, okay, well, actually, now our team is only. 20% in LA and even wow yeah and so it's so now it's just kind of all over the place that's incredible i mean it's ama- it is amazing that that is a possibility i mean even like I, that's what i was saying to i was talking to my son about finding a therapist and i realized like i don't need a therapist in new york it really doesn't matter i can go to someone in utah <laughs> it's totally okay and that was pretty um it's a strange thing between that and exercise i'm like the best thing to come out of this whole problem process for me was like parent teacher conferences on Zoom is like the best thing ever. My son's school is <laughs> far away and I'm like, oh, it's so much better. Um, but yeah, that's great. I love that you can go for a jog at 2.30. Yeah, I think that to me, I like to break up my day that way where my brain just starts melting at around 2 p.m. It, 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 I can't like input any more information into it. And so... And so having that break where I'll take a, an hour or two off uh, around that time allows me to have a lot more productive hours in the evening. Um, and, and that doesn't mean it's necessarily work-related. It could be just kind of writing or Fired. hanging out with other people, whether it's like virtually or like the small group of friends that I have that where we actually see each other in person. And so that part for me is is just a lot better. And I think for other people who have kids or have, you know, their own kind of life, like having that flexibility as long, the big, the next frontier for us is asynchronous work. So how can you make it possible for people to actually work together, not in the same time zone, not at the same time where you're sort of like ping ponging projects while maintaining the like momentum of them, where you don't have to like literally have to do a meeting where both people are there present at the same time. I mean, I think certain businesses will obviously be able to do something like that. But like, for instance, like a Shake Shack, like just not. Yeah, of course. And so anytime you have an in-person presence, it totally changes your ability to do something like that. But I think it'll be really interesting. I'm seeing it already. I mean, even just with the development of Love Scene, like we had developers on the team that were in Turkey and we had people, you know, we everything, you know, we had people that were working in LA, people that were working in New York, people working in Philly. Like we had no... We were on multiple time zones. We are still on multiple time zones. And it is an interesting challenge because I think it, what it does do is, as you, is, particularly when you have a, a new young business, how do you pick the time zone? Who's Who takes priority? What ends up happening is I feel like my lines just get blurred later and later because everyone in LA is still awake. And I'm like, you guys, it's nine o'clock. And it's, like, and and it's only there six o'clock. And, you know, it's it's um that is a part I think is hard, particularly with a younger business of like, how do you, you know, it's like, of course, you want to do everything you can to get it going and take care of it and the boundaries get really messy. I think in that case, the the important thing is to be able to set really clear goals as a team and and create the circumstances for people to have as much autonomy relative to those goals as possible. So if everyone kind of agrees, here's where we're going and everyone understands what their responsibility relative to that goal is, then you have a little bit more ability to kind of let people loose and do their own thing and then find the right cadence for those moments that do need to be synchronous, whether it's, you know, once every couple of days or once a week or once every two weeks where you group back and it's like, okay, how did we do relative to that? Yes. No, I, I couldn't, I could not agree more. Yes. I, I, I think that's very true. I mean, it's, listen, it's interesting. I have, 
I have definitely had to shift my mindset. I'm much more of a a, a sort of in-person managed by discussion, meaning like conversations mm-hmm. can often ignite and, you know, small things happening or something landing on the table or somebody joking about something that turns into something else. And all of a sudden we're talking, you know, I've always sort of functioned that way. And so I'm, I'm not having that opportunity to do that now. And I definitely feel um, it's it's a real, it's, yeah, it's like shape-shifting your, your process. It's very interesting and hard sometimes. As we wrap up, what are uh, what are you reading, watching, listening to at the moment? That's been a uh, something you want to share that people could look into as a as a thing that's been keep captivating your attention. Oh, that's a good question. Um, God, I have been watching a lot more television than I normally used to. I don't. I have not had cable the entire pandemic. <laughs> so I've been watching television shows on my screen. I'm trying to think of what is, I mean, I literally did go through like every single Phoebe Waller-Bridge uh, series. So I think, you know, whether it be, you know, Killing You, which I know is a little bit of, seems like a little bit of an older thing, but that was, I think was pretty, all of Phoebe Waller-Bridge's projects, I think are. I, I know everyone loves Fleabag. I have not gotten a chance to watch that yet. I, I do love, there's also another show that's called I May Destroy You. Um, and it's just so, um, it's beautifully done, beautifully shot. This woman literally is the main actress and cr- and the creator. She literally wrote the entire thing. So uh, very similar to Phoebe Waller-Bridge, another British film, um, British show. Just incredible and really and, and very inspiring. Yeah, and it's, I'm, I'm a huge fan. And then, of course, The Queen's Gambit, which everybody knows about and everyone's seen. But I thought it was fantastic and loved how, like, manipulative and smart she was. And it made me very happy. <laughs> I will throw out my my pick. I, I just recently moved and I was moving all of my books. And I found that at one point I bought a whole stack of this book, which is, I think, probably my favorite book called The Machine Stops. It's a science fiction book from like 1909. Uh-huh. And I bought a bunch of copies because I was just giving them away to people. <laughs> and now I need to figure out how to give them away. But someone... Uh, stopped by and saw that I had a stack and took one. Going back to our discussion about what happens, it's very relevant to right now because it's a story. It's a short story. It's like 70 or 80 pages about a future that still seems sci-fi, even though this was written over 100 years ago, where people are all basically living in a pod and talking to each other via Zoom. (laughs) Yeah, so it's very relevant to right now. So if you want a a short book, The Machine Stops is good. I love that. Um, I would be thrilled. I I mean, I have like literally 20 books sitting next to my bed, and I don't know if I could even tell you what I'm reading. Well, this this is a low commitment. This is like you could finish it in an hour or an hour and a half. Thank you, Jenna. I could keep going for another three hours. So um, <laughs> we'll set, we'll send people to all of the different um, websites and projects you have going on. And it's been great talking to you. Yeah, same. Thank you so much, Stefan. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, if you got something useful out of it, I would love to hear what that was. Consider writing a short review. It could be just a sentence long by going to iTunes and searching for Well Made. I want to hear it all. I want to hear good, bad. I want to hear your constructive criticisms. I am just trying to make this show as useful as possible for you. So tell us what you think. That is the very best way that you can support the show. Thanks, and see you next time.